You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 7th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, Brexit, 22 days to go, and the sunlit uplands remained obstinately obscured by fog. My guests, Mary Dijewski and Mark Ditley, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Vladimir Putin reveals, or at least asserts, that Russia has unmasked hundreds of foreign spies, Turkey's continuing baiting of Germany, its second largest supplier of tourists, at least for the moment, and the app that Switzerland hopes will get its people fighting fit. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and Mark Ditley, founder and editor-in-chief of The Market, a new digital platform for financial markets and economic issues to be launched in Zurich a few weeks from now. Welcome both. And we will start tonight with Brexit, which on current scheduling is due to happen 22 days from now. And there are almost certainly listeners with better ideas of where they will be on the last weekend of March than the United Kingdom presently does. Not for the first time the UK has now been urged to submit fresh proposals to the EU within the next 48 hours as the search for some sort of resolution to the Irish backstop impasse continues, although a pessimist might suggest that if such a thing existed, somebody might have spotted it at some point these last two and a half years. EU officials have signalled their willingness to work through this weekend if the UK manages to retrieve its homework from the jaws of the dog by Friday. Um, Mary, the, the, the EU are just amusing themselves at this point, aren't they? They don't seriously expect the UK is going to come up with anything sensible. Well, you have to say that giving people sort of 48 hours to do whatever they want them to do, it sounds really like school. Now, (laughs) you know, I hear that in the background there is a little bit more flexibility. That wasn't quite how it was put. That actually was put in a much nicer way. Um, But the fact is that time is running out. And the importance of this weekend is because next week there are three days in Parliament where the latest votes build as make or break crisis votes are scheduled. So Theresa May needs to have something to present to Parliament by next Tuesday, because that is the date she said she would have something by. Um, Mark, in in Zurich, um, and I know from my own recent travels in Europe that most people in Europe are regarding this spectacle with increasing bewilderment, but how is it being discussed, if at all, in Switzerland? Or are people just now of the view that the United Kingdom is losing its mind and is probably best left alone to get on with it? Um, I mean, we're, we are watching it and we're watching it very closely. And I can tell you, we're just all, we're basically scratching our heads at this huge, huge mess that uh, Britain has created for itself. Um, it, it is clear that uh, um, the economy, the British economy, will suffer heavily. Uh, we can't see any solution that will be, uh, that will magically just pop up in the next, in the next few days. Uh, but in short, yes, we're, we're just watching this mess and think, you know, what were they thinking? 
I mean, Mary, far be it, obviously, from four journalists, rather, such as ourselves, to criticise anybody else for faffing around for ages and ages and ages and then throwing something together in a massive panic with deadline descending. But um, are you getting the sense that the political grounds in the UK are shifting at all towards Theresa May's widely disliked withdrawal deal? This idea that at this point, even the hardcore Brexiter headbangers are realising they don't want to get blamed for the chaos attended upon a no-deal Brexit and that maybe the smart thing to do is just take the win. Well, actually, I do get that sense um, that very, very slowly there is some movement on among the hard Brexiteers. Um, but the question is, is it enough of them and are they actually prepared to go into the lobby and vote for something that may be a slightly adjusted version of Theresa May's deal the last time around that might just allow a little bit of saving saving face? And one of the, one of the reasons I say that is just because of the sort of background noise and rumours on the political circuit. Um, But another is because there is going to be a meeting, um, sort of pretty public meeting um, of the Bruges group, um, which has been partly at the centre of the um, of the Brexiteer mission. And they're going to be meeting, they often meet at lunchtimes, um, very close to Parliament, and they're having a meeting next Monday, um, which looks as though it could be some sort of preparation for some sort of softening up. But of course, you know, you can say, well, we've been here before, haven't we? Uh, we certainly have. Uh, and on which subject, Mark, there is also a of talk that we may be here a while longer than planned. This idea that whether Theresa May's deal somehow finally gets over the line or doesn't, uh, that there will need to be an extension of that March 29th deadline. Is it your view, and I realise that Switzerland is not in the EU, but is it nonetheless your view that there's much enthusiasm for the idea of drawing this out even further? Um, no, I mean, no possibly nobody really wants to draw this out into infinity but at the same time i mean if if i would have to bet i would bet uh, yes it it will be extended just trying to 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 really ram it through in those in those next couple of weeks really uh seems less and less uh, probable to me I think one of the reasons I should possibly have said as to why some of the Brexiteers may be softening is because presented with a choice of no deal or an extension um, or even a dissolution of Parliament, which might take the whole thing absolutely back to basics, the Brexiteers to an extent are a little bit back up against a wall because they can see that this might be the best deal that is going to be on offer, the closest thing that they can get to Brexit. Because the more something is delayed, if the first deadline's missed, things can be delayed again. They may be delayed again. If there is an increased clamour, which it doesn't seem at the moment for this thing called people's vote or a second referendum, there is the possibility that the Brexiteers are going to lose everything. And I think that's the threat that some of them at least see hanging over them. Just as a final thought on this, Mary, I think Mark has already answered this question, but it's a question I've been putting to every guest that we've had on the show about, and it's basically this. March 30th, where do you think the UK will be, in or out? 
I think we'll be out with a deal that is very close to Theresa May's original deal. Okay, well, let's move along now and look at Russia, which has just been observing the annual tradition whereby President Vladimir Putin pays a visit to the FSB, Russia's approximate successor agency to President Putin's Soviet-era employers, the KGB. As usual, Putin has announced the number of foreign spooks exposed, thwarted or rounded up in the previous year, a figure which this year he put at nearly 600, significantly up on previous years. There is, of course, no way of verifying what, if any, relationship exists between these numbers and the truth, but even if foreign espionage against Russia is not on the up, Putin certainly wishes to create the impression that it is. Um, Mary, which of those two scenarios strikes you as more likely? I realise they're not mutually exclusive, but is it more likely that more and more people are spying on Russia, or that Putin wants to give that impression, or perhaps even that the FSB are getting better at catching them? Well, I think there may be a little bit of both, but I think it's possible um, that this year there was actually an increase. And the reason why there would have been an increase is because after the Skripal poisoning in Salisbury last March, um, pretty much a year ago, um, there was a series of diplomatic expulsions largely orchestrated by the British, but spread around a lot of countries and a lot of Russian diplomats. And Russia, of course, in this particular case, responded with one-on-one expulsions. So I think we may sort of see some of the, you know, some of those, some of the increase is explained by those tit-for-tat expulsions, which were actually, you know, a large number of people, and that could have led to this year's spike. Um, Mark, how seriously do you think we should take these numbers? I mean, obviously, the the FSB, I don't think, provide regular um transparent accounts. Putin could have said we've caught 10,052 3 million and 6. There wouldn't really be any way of knowing, would there? Uh, exactly. I mean, you, you mentioned it. Uh, these numbers are uh, not verifiable, and and this is a this is really a a, a, a yearly uh, uh, thing. Every spring, uh, Putin visits the FSB and uh, and comes up with with the numbers. So basically, I firstly, I think we should take it as uh, as it is. It's it's primarily a PR stunt. It's a narrative that Putin is creating for himself. Now, I agree with with Mary. It's it's probably a bit of both. Maybe there were some more, uh, 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 some more uh, expulsions linked uh, 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 to foreign agents, but it's it's also clear that Putin needs to create that narrative because at the same time, I mean, there wasn't only the Skripal poisoning uh, last year. Uh, uh, the Swedish, the Dutch, the Czech intelligence services—they have all foiled attacks. Um, we know we've seen many reports that uh, that that. Putin is interfering in elections in the West. We have the EU Parliament uh, elections coming up in May. So this all adds up into into one big narrative. And of course, uh, Putin needs to create a narrative that actually Russia is being uh, under attack, so to say. I think also, um, especially this year, if you like, he needs to fe- make Russian spies, Russian intelligence services feel a bit good about themselves, um, give them a bit more um, esprit de corps. Because what we've seen over the last year, um, not just in connection with the Skripal poisoning, but also with the um, American reports and the exposés of um, more than a dozen um, military intelligence agents um still in Russia for hacking, um, that 
The GRU especially, the military intelligence, which is different from the FSB and Putin's loyalty has always been to the FSB, not the GRU, um, because FSB was who he worked for. Um, but I think there is a sense that the GRU in particular, it's been ridiculed around the world. Um, and that's partly the fault of the Brits um, because of the way that um, the two agents were... Or the, two supposed agents who were in Salisbury who may or may not have um, poisoned the Skripals, um, the way they were sort of ridiculed and then they were put on Russian television and the way you know, they were described um, by ordinary Russians, um, they came across as absolutely incompetent and they were joked about as being the sort of tourists in Salisbury. Um, and this isn't a good look for any intelligence service. So I think that there may have been a bit of a deliberate attempt this year um, to raise the sort of profile and the seriousness and the impression of competence in the Russian intelligence services. Um, Mark, to going back to what you were saying earlier about Russia's own activities in this realm uh, in other countries, um, is it almost impressive that, that President Putin is able to keep a straight face while complaining about the possibility of hostile espionage uh, being pursued against Russia? It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like Russia doesn't have form in this respect. Oh, I mean, I mean, Putin is playing his game very, very uh, intelligently. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the position of Russia as a, I mean, and I'm talking in the long term now, as a declining power, uh, he plays his hand on the world stage very intelligently. Um, I mean, look at the US. There's probably, but you know, the only person in the, in the United States not agreeing that Russia has interfered in the 2016 elections is Donald Trump, right? Uh, we've had several reports about interference in Western European democratic elections. I don't know if you've seen it, but a couple of weeks ago, the Italian magazine L'Espresso had a very, very good uh, investigative story about links between Putin and uh, Matteo Salvini of the of, of the Lega uh, party. So, you know, it's absolutely clear that he's playing his game here in our Western democracies. And I have to say, he's playing it smartly and he keeps a very, very straight face with it. Um, Mary, there is a, a conventional wisdom uh, about President Putin to the effect that, that he never really left the KGB and, that, and that, that his time in the KGB spent substantially in the then East Germany is the is the key uh, to underpinning uh, his his character and his behaviour. Do you subscribe to that at all, or is it just a little bit convenient? Well, it's often said, once a KGB man, always a KGB man, and practically every biography that's been written of Putin sort of begins there and says the key to Putin is that he is um, KGB and you're never ex-KGB. And sometimes I feel that I'm almost the only Russia in the whole world, Russia watcher in the whole world, um, who doesn't actually subscribe to that. Um, because I think while it's very easy, and you know, the same thing is sometimes said of Western intelligence agents, that um, you always have that mindset, you never lose it. Um, and there may be some of that in that, but you have to remember with Putin's biography, um, he was in the KGB and he left the KGB. He left the KGB as the Soviet Union was collapsing. He didn't wait until it collapsed um, and he went into civilian life. And that was actually a gigantic step for anybody 
um, especially somebody like Putin, who'd seen it as his life's aim from the time he was a young teenager um, to join what he saw as sort of the premier patriotic service. So I actually don't agree with once a KGB agent, always a KGB agent, as it applies to Putin. OK, well, on the subject of uh, Russia watchers and on uh, Vladimir Putin, if you tune into The Daily at 2200 tonight, we will be hearing from Mark Galliotti about his new book about Vladimir Putin. We need to talk about Putin. Uh, on Midori House, we're going to take a short break right now. This is Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, Mary Dijewski and Mark Ditley. Uh, coming up next, why Germans are being warned off Turkey at, annoyingly, the wrong time of year for Christmas-related jokes. Mention the name Funkhaus in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhaus on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and Mark Dietli. Germany is the second biggest provider of tourists to Turkey, with roughly four and a half million visits last year. That number may be about to dramatically dwindle, at least if Germans are listening to the outbursts of Turkey's interior minister and indeed the warnings of their own government. Speaking at an election rally at the weekend, Suleyman Solu, the interior minister, made the peculiar allegation that people who had attended what he described as terrorist organisation rallies in Germany would be arrested upon arrival in Turkey, should they be minded to holiday there. This was a not-at-all-veiled swipe at the PKK, the Kurdish political party come militia. Germany's Kurdish diaspora often hold events supporting Kurdish causes. Germany's foreign office called Mr Soylu's remarks unhelpful, which is commendable diplomatic understatement. Um, Mark, do we have much idea of exactly what Mr Soylu was on about here? Did he appear to be going anywhere with this, or was he just getting a bit carried away? Um, I mean, he he made those remarks at an, uh, as far as I understand it, at at an election campaign rally. Uh, so you know, basically, it was it was home politics. Um, and of course, I mean, you know, take a stab, uh, take a stab at Western Europe, take a stab at Germany. Um, as you mentioned, it 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 obviously it was a a a, a uh, it was aimed at supporters of uh, of the of the pkk the kurdistan workers party um but at the same time you know there's a there's there's a gray area of 
organizations that Turkey uh, brands as terrorist organizations, let's say the Gulen movement, for example, uh, which uh, most Western nations do not uh, accept as being a terrorist organization. So, you know, I mean, but but he was he was doing domestic politics there. Uh, Mary, there has been a, a bit of a pro forma remarks taken out of context uh, statement issued by Turkey's foreign ministry uh, since then. How nervous would just Turkish business owners in big cities that attract a lot of tourists be about this sort of chat? I'm just thinking it's, it's obviously far from a scientific example, but I did a story for Monocle last year uh, attempting to recreate the Orient Express by travelling by rail from London to Istanbul. Uh, and I did meet um, some German uh, people on that leg of the trip uh, who, when I told them where I was going, said they'd love to go to Turkey, but they would be extremely nervous uh, about visiting Turkey. Is, is that a, a fair thing to think if you're German at the moment? Well, I think there's two aspects to this. Um, one of them is that I think it's not the first time. Um, there's, I think actually the last time there was a warning from um, the German foreign ministry or its equivalent, um, just warning um, that there might be sort of dangers. For, I think it was especially for German journalists going to mm. Turkey. Um, and there's a particular problem for um, Germans of um, Turkish origin or um, Germans with dual Turkish-German nationality um, because they are vulnerable to arrest in Turkey for whatever um, misdemeanor the, the, the Turks might decide to pin on them. Um, so it doesn't sort of apply across the board to Germans. But of course, just setting that atmosphere and having those sort of warnings coming from your foreign ministry is not exactly the way to encourage tourists. So, And you've got sort of the two two types of German visitors. You've got the ones who are going to sit on the beach and have a relaxing time for two weeks in a nice cheap hotel and nice beach in Turkey. And then you've got a lot of Germans um, of Turkish background um, who are going to visit family, friends, um, and then go, go back to Germany. And that complicates the picture hugely. Um, and it also has to be said in that respect, that it's only relatively recently um, that Germany allowed um, people to have dual, nation, dual nationality in Turkey. Um, that's something that quite a lot of states, um, including um, the United States, came to rather recently. Um, they don't like to have um, citizens who have dual nationality. Um, and Germany, for quite a long time, took a very hard line about um, Turks who'd come as guest workers, had children, and their children might have German nationality or Turkish nationality. But their parents wanted them to have Turkish nationality and it was very late in the day in the European context um, that dual nationality became acceptable for um, for Germany and now um, it's being seen that there's a downside to this too. Mark, do you think there is a serious danger of Turkey rendering itself um, dramatically unattractive to, to European visitors? Um, I mean, this this is this is really a longer term development. What we're seeing, I mean, you know, we are or or Turkey is on that path and has has been on that path for several years. Um, when you look back twenty years, when you look back at the pre Erdogan uh, era, it's really sad to see how Turkey 
and Europe have have really grown apart. Now, you know, when you ask whether there's a risk that Turkey might lose a lot of European tourists, not because of a, of of an utterance of of the of the interior minister that he that he made in the past uh, couple of days, but in the long term, it's just very very sad to see how Turkey and Europe have have just grown apart, and you know. Of course, at the margin, yes, uh, the average tourist, uh, should she decide to go, to go to Spain next summer or to go to Turkey next summer, the decision will probably tilt more towards Spain and not towards Turkey or more towards Italy and Greece and not towards Turkey. I mean, speaking only for myself, and I'm, I'm about to ask you to do the same, Mary, but speaking only for myself, I had a whale of a time uh, in Istanbul last summer, would be absolutely happy to visit again in a heartbeat, great city, great food, enormously friendly people, etc. But would you be at all nervous yourself, personally, about visiting Turkey? Well, I would say about 20 years ago, I, I went to Turkey on a small group trip all over Turkey and had an absolutely fantastic time. Um, I've been to Istanbul um, and Ankara reasonably regularly over the last sort of five, six years. Now, I have a slightly different impression of at least going to Istanbul, um, which is I found it less um, less friendly, less female friendly in the last couple of years than I found it before. Um, I found that I was jostled on the street. I found that there were many more women with their heads covered. Um, I didn't find it nearly as congenial an atmosphere as I had done in Istanbul in the past or in the recent past. Um, but I think when you go to the beach resorts, which is where you know, most tourists tend to go, um, there the atmosphere is is quite different. Um, and I've got relatives in the travel industry and they say that, at least from the British perspective, tourism to Turkey is standing up remarkably well to everything, um, in part because it's very, very cheap, in part because it's... Um, outside the Eurozone, so the Brexit issue doesn't apply, which is a problem for this year, um, and that the Brits, along with the Russians, are considered the most resilient tourists to whatever <laughs> politics might throw at them. OK, well, finally tonight, it is a common wistful lament of people just past draftable age that much of what ails their particular country could be fixed by the introduction of national service to promote general moral and physical fitness. If Switzerland, which very much has national service, is guide, however, that may not be enough. Apparently concerned that recruits are arriving not quite prepared for the rigours of military life, the Swiss government has launched a new app called Ready Team Army, intended to enable new boots to hit the ground running. Um, Mark in Zurich, do we know what this app actually does? Does it just tell you to go outside and run around a lot or is it a bit more structured than that? Um, well, yeah. I mean, f firstly, as you mentioned, we we still do have mandatory uh, service. I mean, it's actually quite. Uh, uh, I mean, compulsory uh, service for Swiss men. It's actually quite easy to get away if you want to. Uh, but this app, you know, it, it it's a bit of a of a of a silly thing, really. But what you can do is you can enter. Uh, let's say you're a 16 year old or a young Swiss. You can enter the kind of uh, of army function that you want to pre prepare for. You know, if you want to be a a parrot 
a, a, a parachute uh, uh, commando or, or you know something like that the app will actually uh, create a special workout program for you that, that you can follow over the next uh, a couple of years to prepare you for uh, for your service um, you know it, it it's a funny little thing um, I was I was quite surprised they uh, I read that the army is hoping for 200,000 downloads uh, of the app in the first year so there will be there will need to be many 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 people in Switzerland who will download the app uh, and you know not because they want to get into the army but maybe they just uh, want to exercise a bit more Mary in general are you are you a big fan of uh state programs to encourage healthier lifestyles among the population? Well, on the one hand, I'm not. On the other hand, um, you look at Finland and the way that they increased life expectancy and reduced heart disease and Finnish population through a national campaign. And you think, fantastic, you can actually do this. Um, but I think there was the, the, there was a suggestion that maybe um, we could think of apps that you might use sort of in, in other places. And there's certainly a problem with army recruitment in the UK, even with the professional army and in the police, where the levels of fitness aren't wonderful. Um, and I sort of thought when we were considering this that actually the best app to have would be to um, give you a sort of scenario that you actually lived in the inner London suburbs. Because I came back from Washington and was astonished at the fitness level of Londoners racing up and down stairs in the <laughs> underground, racing up escalators, marching Watching down corridors, it is spectacular. Um, just final thought on the idea of national service, Mark. You mentioned that it is fairly easy to get out of, and I know many Swiss people who have done that through one means or another. But is is the the idea of national service still holding up among the Swiss? Do people still think it's a good thing for a country to have? All in all, yes. You know, there's a, there's a very interesting thing that came up just in the last couple of years, really, when you hear and read uh, about inequality in our populations. You know, in, in most countries, uh, uh, in, in, in developed nations and, and really worldwide, inequality has risen. Now, the, the, the compulsory Swiss military service actually does a does a very good thing uh, in in um, uh, in in fighting inequality because you get to spend a lot of time with people from all corners of the of the country. You get to spend a lot of time with people. You would. I mean, I live in Zurich. Uh, when I was in the army, I spent a lot of time with Swiss compatriots that lived in the mountains, that lived in villages, that did other jobs than me, people that I hardly ever met in my own urban bubble here in Zurich. So which actually actually is quite a good thing in, in kind will, of creating a national uh, uh, feeling. We will have to leave it there. Mark Ditley and Mary Dijewski, thank you for joining us. The show was produced by Marcus Hippie, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrich. Our studio manager was May Lee Evans. Music next, The Urbanist at 1900. I'm back with more in the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at 1800 tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.